just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come and study. We thank you for each person that's here. If there's anybody else that's on their way, that you bring them quickly. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Psalm 139. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my down-sitting and my uprising. You understand my thoughts afar off. You comp compass my path my lying, and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have beset me behind and before, and have laid your hand upon me. Oh. Psalm 139, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my down-sitting and my uprising. You understand my thoughts afar off. You compassed my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. There is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have beset me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot obtain unto it. Whither shall I go from your spirit, and whither shall I flee, flee from your presence? If I ascend unto the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall your hand lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall, over, well, shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hides not from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you have possessed my range. You have covered me in, in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance is not hid from you when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes did see my substance, yet being imperfect, and, my, and in your book are all my members were written, which were continuance of fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are your thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I could count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Surely you will slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloody men. For you speak against you, you, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, that hate you? Am I not grieved with those that rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. All right, this is a very powerful psalm. And it's very much a psalm of victory. And so we're going to look at this. We're going to go back start taking it apart verse by verse. Starting at verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know, this is quite interesting. You have searched me. You have examined me. And this is David saying, God, you know, you, you have examined me. You have checked out my life. And how many times does God put us into situations to prove our life? And we've talked about this many times. He keeps giving us tests that says, do you really believe? You know, are you going to stand for what you say you believe? Have you been trained? Are you going to stand up for what he believes and follow him? And it says, God, you have searched me. And by searching me, you have known me. You have come to understand and perceive who I am. And this is something very powerful. And if Sharon was here, you know, she'd be talking about how wonderful it is that God knows us and cares about our individual products. But she's right in it. God cares for every single individual and knows us personally. 
and intimately. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And that's an amazing thought, even, <laughs> even in itself, you know, because we as humans have a great capacity to lie to ourselves and deceive ourselves, and God is not deceived about who we are. And this is something that's very precious in many ways because he looks and says, I care. I care even though I know who you really are. And he knows the depths of our depravity. He knows the depths of what we're capable of, both good and bad, because he has searched us, examined us, and knows us. And it says, you know my down-sitting and my uprising. You understand my thoughts afar off. When I lay down, when I sit down and abide someplace, or if I'm in motion and moving around and in transit someplace else, God knows. And he says, he knows my thoughts from afar. All right? And that means wherever he's at, <laughs> he knows our thoughts because he's never far. But even, if, even here, though, David's saying, you know, even, even though you seem far away, you know my thoughts. And oftentimes we think of God as being far away. God, you're so far away, how can you know anything? And David's reiterating here, even if you think he's far away, he knows. He knows everything about us. And this is a precious, can be scary, I guess, if you're living the wrong lifestyle, but you know, he still loves us. He still loves us. He is not repelled by our lifestyle because he already knows what it is. And how does God see us anyway? If we're his child, he sees us through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he says, I've got you. I'm going to help you learn. I'm going to teach you. But he's got us. And he knows our thoughts. And verse, 33, uh, verse 3 says, You compass my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Compass means enclosed. Okay? He encloses my path. He, he encircles me. All right? Uh, why? Because he's everywhere present. He literally, and David's saying, you're there. You are my protector. You are the one that's all around me. And my path, you know, in my path, my walking, when I'm laying down, and then he goes, and you are acquainted with my ways. And this is, again, one of those things that could be scary if you're not living the right way, but he knows us, he's, and he's not rejecting us. And this is the, David's whole point of this. God, you know me, and you're not rejecting me. And in David's case, he says, I'm, you know, he's trying to serve God. He's a humble man, even though he doesn't, doesn't serve God all the time. We know there's so many places where he doesn't serve God very well. Uh, this incident with Bathsheba, Uriah, fact that he didn't raise his kids very well, uh, the number of wives that he had, you know, he was not above, you know, going to war for any reason. Uh, you know, but he still loved God. And God knew that his heart ultimately was wanting to search and be humble. It may take him a long time to get there, as in the case of, of his repentance from Bathsheba and Uriah, because remember, it was well over a year before he finally gets to a place where he repents, and that's because Nathan calls him out. But because we know that it's at least nine months because the baby is already born before it is struck dead, so we know it's more than nine months and it's old enough to be, be aware. So we know that he's looking at 10 to 12 months at least before he finally repents. And that, the only reason he repents is because the baby is struck down. And even then, he's not really coming to God until Nathan comes and challenges him and says, you're, you're the one that did this you know, crime that you're getting so upset about. And we see God knowing it. Verse 4 says, there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, Lord, you know it all together. Okay, here he's saying, even before I speak, you know what I'm going to say. All right? And this is what I keep saying over and over. You're never going to hear God said, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. All right? No matter what you say, do, what happens to you, what somebody else says or do, God already knew that it was going to happen. And it's hard for us to comprehend. And David is saying, Lord, before I even, while it's still on the tip of my tongue, I haven't even said it, you know it, and not only do you know it, you know it all together. I wish you'd tell me to shut up and say that. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, you, you probably still would, but. <laughs> but the thing is that God knows what's going to, and he already knows all the words that are going to be said. He knows, he knows whether you're going to repent of them quickly or slowly. He knows whether you're even going to repent of your, of your words. And he knew you were going to say them before you said them. And I just, I love the grace of God that he shows us because he knows all the things that we're going to do wrong before they even happen. And yet, he loves us. And yet, he loves us enough to have sent his son to die for us that we talked about this morning. And he knew what we were going to say even before the foundations of the earth, before he created the heavens and the earth. He knew what we were going to say before we were created. That is a bizarre thought process for us as humans to think of. How did you know what we were going to do, say, and act before you even, before you even framed the earth? Not even before you framed us, but before you even started the earth, you already knew everything we were going to do. Yeah, is an amazing thought. And yet he created us, and he sent Jesus to die for us, knowing exactly how many millions were going to reject him and go to hell, and how many millions would receive him and go to heaven. And we know that more are going to go to hell than go to heaven because Jesus said many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I? And so it means that they rejected him. And yet, he started loving us enough to create us anyway. The omniscience of God is so powerful. You know, he knows everything. How does he know everything? I have no idea. <laughs> it's beyond my comprehension how he can know and how he could love us in spite of knowing everything he knows about us. And that's, that to me is just unfathomable that he still would love us. And then in verse 5, you have beset me behind and before you have laid your hand upon me. God surrounds us in the front and the back and he puts his hands on us. What's his hands on us for? To guide us, to direct us. Yeah. If you really want to direct somebody, you know, through a tight space, and, you know, uh, you, put your, you put your hands on their shoulders to help them, guide them. Um, Family Life Today was talking about how they do a demonstration of a father leading his son through a, through a stage that is covered with bear traps. And the son's blindfolded. And they start out saying, okay, do you want to go over here and talk him through it, or do you want to stand behind him and guide him through it? There's not a father that's ever talked him through the bear traps. You know, he's gone behind him with his hands on his back, this kind of verse right here, and walked him through the, through the, through the stage. That's what God is doing with us. If we will allow him and not fight against him, he will guide us individually through all the obstacles in our life because he has surrounded us and he actually puts his hands on our shoulders to guide us. Now the problem is most of us, including myself, like to fight him when he's trying to guide us through the problems. And we'll go, well, God, that just doesn't make sense. Why, why are you asking me to do this? And God says, I know what I'm doing. And we may not be that vocal with him, but isn't that what we're saying when we don't listen to him and don't allow him to guide us? Is God, you don't know what you're doing. I want to do it my way. I did it my way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which gets you into lots of trouble. Mm -hmm. Over and over again, we want to do it our way. And really bad when we've been studying the scripture and we know what the right answer is and we still do it our way. And doing things our way always leads to consequences that we don't want to deal with. And the sad thing is we usually, before that, we think that we want to, you know, we count the consequences that we think are coming our way and say, well, I can handle these consequences. They're not really that big. And there's always consequences that we don't anticipate that are bigger than what we were willing to pay the cost of. And we're going to face them. Then verse 6, and I love this, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot obtain unto it. He's going, God, you're always with me. You know everything, and I just can't understand 
this. It is too marvelous. It is just too high for me to understand. And this goes back to what I keep saying. Why did God create man knowing that we were going to sin, knowing that we were going to fall, knowing that Jesus was going to have to sacrifice himself, and yet he did it. It is too high for us to understand. What God did it for, I have no idea. You know, people will say, well, God wanted to be worshipped. Well, God has, is perfectly complete within himself and doesn't need anything. So there was no need to create man, have, create man so we would worship him. He had millions or so of angels to do that for him. He really didn't need man. And even before angels were created, he didn't need them because you had the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect unity. So why did he create all these beings? I don't know. Maybe, maybe he'll tell us in heaven. I don't know. But you know, it's kind of interesting why, you know, you think, I think about three and four-year-old kids are always asking why, you know, and sometimes I think I, that's all I am with God is a three or four-year-old kid, you know, wanting to know why. Why, God? Why did you do that? God, why did And by God's standards, we probably are three and four-year-old kids because <laughs> we are so insignificant compared to him and his knowledge and his understandings. And he says, God, I cannot even understand all this. I cannot obtain this knowledge. And as he's throwing this out, God, you're there. You're listening. You know my thoughts. You know my words before I even speak. And I just can't understand this. And, you know, we've talked about this. You know, God's omniscience. He walks back and forth in time as if time doesn't exist to him. He just walks back and forth. And his omniscience, his omnipresence, is that he is it everywhere at the same time and every time at the same time. And that is mind-blowing. And whatever's beyond time, he, has, he is there too at the same time. You know, whatever's at the fourth, fifth, sixth dimension, he's in all those places at the same moment. You know, things we can't even comprehend, he's already there. We look at this and say, God, how? Why would you do such a thing? Why would you love us so much that you would know us and still love us? God says, I know you completely and still I love you. Why does he love? His love is objective. He's chosen to love us. Objective love. He chooses to love us. And I've said it over and over. We don't want it to be any other way. Humans usually have subjective love. I love you because I get something back from you. Whether it's a feeling or you treat me well or you're kind to me. I love you because you make me feel good in some way, shape, or form. And the day you don't make me feel good, my subjective love says, I don't love you anymore. God's love is objective. I, he chooses to love us. He says, he says, I love you. And why does he love us? Because he chose to. And the good news is because he's the same yesterday and today and forever, he will not choose to unlove us because he chooses to love us. And the only way he could could not love us would be to, to change his mind and he's not going to change his mind. It's going to break God's heart when people choose to go to hell. When they have rejected him with all of his love and his care for them and they have chosen to go to hell because of not receiving him, he's still going to love them and it's going to break his heart. Just as it breaks any parent's heart when their children goes crazy off the deep end and you're going, that's not the son or daughter I raised. You know, what are, what are they doing going this direction? You still love them, even though you're not supporting their lifestyle, you still love them. And God's going to say, I can't support your lifestyle, but I love you. I love you deeply. I sent Jesus to die for you. And you rejected him. And because you rejected him, you're going to get what you've asked for. All of this is so wonderful and beyond our knowledge and understanding. I was thinking of deep, how hard to love us so much. How can we turn and reject it? We cannot possibly understand that love, or we would never. But even as Christians, we oftentimes reject that love and go off into sin. And I think it's right. Part of it is we don't understand his love. We don't understand what he's asking for us. But because we have a sin nature, we oftentimes will let that sin nature guide us down the wrong path. And the crazy thing is, God knows that that's going to happen. And he's already got the plan in place to pick us up and to redeem us and turn us back when we repent. 
but he already knew that it was going to happen. Yeah, and this is, this is the amazing thing that we face. It's just the wonderful love of God in spite of all we do. Verse 7, whither shall I go from your spirit and whither shall I flee from your presence? Now, I'm kind of wondering about this. Why David would he be even asking this question? But I think he's putting it out for people who do want to try to flee from God. Because you think about Jonah. He tried to flee from God's call. Gets into a boat and God kind of decides, okay, you're going to, you're going where I'm telling you to go. And I don't know why Jonah ever said, you know, throw me out of the boat and, and the storm will stop. You know, it's... Uh, just to be swallowed by a fish and taken back to Nineveh, where he was supposed, or back to back to the coast where he was supposed to be going in the first place. Would he rather have died in that stormy sea than go to Nineveh? Yes. That is more hate than I can imagine, and yet God's been sending you on a message. Nineveh was the was the enemy of Israel at that time, and they controlled Israel at that time. He he wanted Nineveh to be destroyed because if Nineveh was destroyed, Israel was free. He did not want Nineveh, be, and he hated them that much that he did not want to take the message. Because remember what he said at the very end of the book of Jonah, when God forgave them and gave them grace, he goes, I knew that you would do this. This is why I didn't want to come here. I knew that you would be gracious if they, if they repented. And I basically saying, I knew that they would repent, otherwise you wouldn't have sent me. But that's why he sent him. Right. Uh, but, you know, how often do we do the same kind of things with God? Know what he's asking us to do and just say, no, God, I am not going to do that and, and try to dig in our, our uh, boots into the ground and get drug, drugged by him anyway to do what he wants us to do oftentimes. And it would have been so much simpler, you know, on our knees and our ankles and everything else and, our, and how we were drugged there if we had just said, okay, I'm going. Yes, God, I'm going. But we've all been there. We've all been there where we rejected God and rejected God and pushed against him. And, and, you know, as God asked Paul, isn't it hard to kick against the pricks? You know, you know what I want you to do? Just go do it because I'm going to keep poking you until you finally do it. You know, and we've all been there where God has poked us into the doing what it is we're supposed to be doing. And, you know, kicking against it and trying not to do it. And, you know, if you know anything about horses, they put the bridle, the bits and the bridle on them. And if the horse does what the horse is supposed to do with just the slightest tug, it doesn't hurt the horse. But if you have to really pull on those reins, the, the bits dig into them and make them say, basically, they would be saying, ow. You know, because they're being forced, and it hurts them when it gets pushed, pulled back on them too hard. So a well-trained horse learns to respond to either the pressure of the knees or just the slightest move of the reins so that the, they're not being pulled. And yet God says, this is what I want to do for you. I want you to do what I'm asking you to do. You know, I, I would rather just speak in your ear and have you go which way I want, but if we're going to really make you do this, we'll... We'll go with the training, the training bright, uh, bits and really, really cause the pain until you learn. And he says, right here, where can, where can I go, God? Where can I go? If I ascend into the heaven, you are there. If I make in my bed in hell, behold, you are there. This is something interesting because many times you probably have heard this, God is not present in hell. Well, God is everywhere. All right? He's omnipresent. Now, his love and his mercy will not be in hell because they've got what they deserve. And we said this over and over again. Hell is not a kingdom for Satan. Satan is going to be sent to hell to be a prisoner of hell for eternity. He is not trying to create a kingdom. Because hell is not going to be a kingdom for him. It's a prison. And we've talked about this several times. It's, you know, we want to understand that he's not setting up an opposite kingdom of God. He is not God's opposite. He's a created being that is submitted to, you know, submitted to God as, you know, by force and has to ask for permission to do anything. You know, we do not want to get this idea that God and Satan are opposites. 
That gets you into Eastern mysticism, the yin and the yang. For every good, there has to be a bad. And that's not true. I never really thought of this before. So when he says every knee will bow, then Satan's knee will bow. Yes, and all the demons. And they would bow and say, you are Lord, before they're cast into hell or prison for eternity. Very powerful. You know, Satan is not setting up an opposite kingdom against God. Now, he's trying to, but it won't work. He is not God's equal. He's a created being. The book of Job tells us that even to go against Job, he had to go to God and ask for permission. And Job is not an isolated case, as we've talked about many times. He's got to go and ask for permission to go against any, especially Christian. But I really believe that he has to ask for permission to really harm anybody. Because everybody is God's. They're not Satan's people. They may not be God's children, but they all belong to him. Because if Satan had his way, and we've talked about this, if Satan had his way, he'd kill people right off the bat to keep them from ever having a chance to know God. Even during the tribulation period when he gets a pretty free hand, he's not going to be able to kill off the entire world's population because the whole purpose of the tribulation is to try to get people to call, turn to God. Now, he'll get to kill lots of people. There will be a lot of people that will die. We've already talked about that. Some 66% of the people will die. Two out of every three people in the Revelation will die. Permission. Well, God, God holds all the circumstances in his hands, so permission granted <laughs> for certain deaths. Uh, but if he, Satan had his will, he'd just kill 100% of the people, not 66% of the people. Will God control who gets who will die and not die? Yes. Will he have his reasons for it? Yes. Will we understand them? No. <laughs> we won't understand why he made his decisions. Well, we don't understand it now. Yeah, we don't understand it now. We're definitely not going to understand it then. But anyway, if I go, to, go up into heaven, you are there. If I descend into hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, wings here do not mean wings of a bird, they mean the outer extremities, all right? If they take the edges of the morning and I pull them around, you're still there. So in other words, morning to morning, if I grab hold of the wings, all right? Grabbing yourself in morning? Well, grabbing the wings, well, you we can't do it, obviously, but he's talking about from grabbing hold of the extremities. Uh, and I've talked about this before, when, when it says that God wants to wrap us in his wings, in the Jewish mentality, they put their prayer shawl on, they grab the corners of their prayer shawl and wrap them around themselves. That's called wrapping them, the wing, their wings around, their, around themselves and entering into their closet. What's that? What's that? Uh, with wings. I'd have to look that one up. Oh, oh, the one that we're reading. Oh, the one we're reading is nine, verse nine. What is your saying? Yeah, the, and, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea. Okay. Even there, your hand will guide me. Beautiful. Yeah, but not correct. <laughs> but beautiful. Yeah, it's very poetically poetically said. But here, wings is literally the extremities. Okay. If I grab hold of morning to morning, I grab hold of the the edges of the morning. Day to day, you know, basically saying day to day. Uh, and if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, which to him is basically hell. <laughs> uh, being, a Jew, being of Jewish descent, they hated the sea for the most part. Most of the Jews hated the sea. They did not trust the sea. When you see pictures of the sea, it's always, almost always bad. <laughs> All right. Uh, but if I, if I take the wings, and literally it means the borders, the borders of the morning. Or, or I think day to day would be a very would be a colloquial term that we would use. If, yeah, I go day to day. You are still there. Um, if I dwell in the the worst parts of the of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. You know, this whole idea of guiding and being held. How wonderful is this for us to really understand that if we will let him. He wants to guide us. He wants to lead us. And 
the God of the universe, which you, it's hard for us sometimes to even picture this, the God of the universe wants to have an individual, personalized relationship with us to lead us into all righteousness, to lead us into all wonderful things that he has for us. And you know, God wants to bless his children. As any father or mother wants to bless their children, God wants to bless his children. We usually limit him. We usually make it difficult for him. But he's then, you, know, you can almost picture God saying, would you just, oh, just please let me, let me guide you. Would you just please listen? Would you just please be obedient? I have so many more blessings for you. And I think part of what's going to happen when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ and he puts all of our works in the fire and he goes, well, here's, your, here's what you earned. You know, here's your gifts for what you let me do for you. But I think for just a moment, he's going to say, here's what I, here's what I had planned on giving you. Here's, here's, what, here's all the rewards you would have had if you had just done what I asked, asked you to do. But here's what you get. For a moment of sadness, we'll realize all that we, all that we lost. And then he'll wipe the tears from our eyes and we won't ever remember all the stuff we lost. But you know, his goal is he wants to reward us. He wants to give us great things. He's building the mansions for us, which as I've said are suites of rooms in the, in the palace of heaven. And he's building these rooms, he's decorating them. Some will have greater suites than others because of the, all the stuff they've done. Some will have very little. And I've, you know, we've talked about this, you know, somebody might just have the little studio apartment. They're there because Jesus grace they, they accepted Jesus and then didn't do anything for him they're in heaven <laughs> little studio that's their mansion a little studio better better than the alternative <laughs> then you have somebody else up on the penthouse they have the whole floor <laughs> because of how much they served God or let him work through them then in verse 11 if I say surely the darkness shall cover me even the night shall be light about me have you ever been in a place where it's been, you're entering the darkness and God shines his light? It's wonderful. It's basically saying, God, even, with, even, if, even if I'm trying to hide from you, your light penetrates all the darkness. And how many times have we tried to hide from God? You know, hopefully not often, but you know, I've been there. I've been there where, God, I'm just going to do my thing. I shared with you guys before, you know, I walked away from God for two years, and never, if, you'd, if you'd have told me before that event that I had ever done it, I would have laughed at you. And yet for two years, I walked away from God. I didn't go into real deep sins or anything, but I just didn't go to church, didn't read my Bible, didn't pray. Did a lot of witnessing for some strange reason. I don't know if I did more witnessing or not, but I remember witnessing during that period of time because I felt like such a hypocrite. Well, I'm telling everybody, no, well, at that time, I'm telling everybody they need God. They need to go to church. They need to be reading his Bible at the same time thinking, okay, I haven't been to church in a year or two. I haven't read my Bible in a year or two. And I'm telling you, you need it. What I'm really telling them is that I need it. I need to get back to God, and I wasn't going to do it. But his light still shone in the darkness. If anybody, as a child of God, tries to go back into sin, you're never comfortable going back into sin because you know that is not where you belong. And you're under con conviction for trying to do it. You're trying to find whatever joy you think you used to have in the sin. And it's not there because you're convicted. So you're not even enjoying the sin that you're trying to enjoy. And because you're convicted and the light is shining all around you and you hopefully get out of it quickly. You've been <laughs> not the person that enjoyed it once before. Right. And usually you got out of it because you didn't enjoy it even before you were saved. You, you had certain aspects of it that you enjoyed, but you still didn't get satisfied by it, or you wouldn't have been looking for God even then. But we forget that we didn't enjoy it when we backslide, and we're trying to go back to what we have in our... You know, which didn't satisfy us before, so isn't going to satisfy us now. And on top of that, we have conviction and God's light shining in the darkness. It's kind of an amazing thing. Once you're God's child, he doesn't leave you alone. And 
you go into, and this is why we look at the book of James and other places in the New Testament to say, if you can habitually commit a sin with no conviction, you're not one of his children. All right? And this is what we've got to be careful. If you can, con if you can commit sin habitually without conviction of that sin, then you have to really say, God, am I one of your children? You cannot lose your salvation, but you may not have had it in the first place. And as I've said before, my scariest words were in the scriptures is when Jesus said, many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I? And they list off a whole bunch of good things. I prophesied. I went. I visited the prisons. I fed the, fed the poor. I clothed the naked. I did all these wonderful godly things. I cast out demons in your name. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. All right? All those works don't mean anything to God. It is what are you done with Jesus? Is he Lord and Savior of your life? And when you know him, you know that you know him. If you don't know him, then you pretty much know that you don't know him. You may think that you're doing, you may do all kinds of good works, but you need to know him. If he's not being a light in your darkness and you can go back to sin, you've got a problem. And if you're being convicted, then you know you're his child. It's easy to sin, but, it's, but there's always going to be that conviction that I'm doing wrong. Or even if you don't repent right away, but you're being convicted, you can be sure that there's a problem. Now, you can keep doing it and sear your conscience against that conviction. And we have the capacity to do that. And you're probably still his child at that point. But it's hard to go to a point where I just want to sin if I'm one of his children. But it is, to me, it's always been... Am I convicted? Yeah. Uh, there are things in my life that I keep falling into, and every time I get there, it's like, what am I doing here again? <laughs> uh, God, please forgive me. You know, and, and, and I find myself falling right back into that same sin later on. But you know, it's mostly because we do not crucify that area of our life, and God's going to keep letting us slip into it, but he's also going to put that conviction in us that says, God, why? You know, please help me. <laughs> And eventually we'll get out of it when we get tired enough of it. <laughs> and then, then, we'll find some other, then we'll find some other thing to have to work out. Verse 12, Yea, the darkness hides not from you, but the night shines as a day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. God understands and will see everything we do. You know, he is light. All right? Light is truth. Light is doctrine. And God says... Whether you want to hide from it or not, you're going to f see my truth. And David's saying, I understand this. Everything's the same. Darkness, obscurity. I'm trying to hide in you in the, in the shadows, in the hiding. Adam and Eve tried to hide from God after their sin. Adam, where are you? We're hiding. Why are you hiding? Well, uh, did you eat the fruit? Hiding behind a fig leaf? Well, they were doing more than that. They were hiding, literally hiding, not just oh. behind the fig leaf. They were hiding beyond that, too. I know, but that great big leaf that hides so much, it is so stickerified. <laughs> and it says, verse 13, I love this. For he has possessed my reins and has covered me in my mother's womb. He has possessed, he has obtained, acquired my reins. My reins, and this reins literally means, in this one, this is one of those places where it's kind of a poetic word, my seat of my emotions. God possesses our emotions. How many times have you maybe said, or you've heard somebody said, well, I just got so angry, sad, depressed, whatever it might be, that I did such and such. We hide behind our emotions frequently. God, I just got so angry in my emotions that I did something, and God says, I possess your emotions if you will just give them to me. You can have them, Lord. We can have victory in our lives by turning over what God already possesses to him. He possesses the seat of our emotions. And he says, you have covered me in my mother's womb. And this word for covered literally means 
that he has shut in. He has, he has encompassed us even in our mother's womb. From the very beginning, he has encompassed his, his children. And he possesses our emotions. You know, and if we could truly start understanding by surrendering to God our entire life, the victory we would have is amazing. Enoch walked with God and was not. He was taken to, to heaven because he drew so close to God. Elijah didn't die either. He drew so close to God that he was probably as perfect as you can get on this world. He let his emotions be controlled by God. He let his life be controlled by God. Enoch did the same thing. And they did not have to die because they let God control them. We would say, from the New Testament point of view, that God had crucified their flesh and their emotions and they had put them completely in God's control. So there are great examples that it can be done. Now, two people out of the how many trillions of people that have ever lived, pretty, pretty small odds. But they're the proof that it can be done. That we can be giving ourselves so over to God that we can be so close to him. Now, I'm not there yet. <laughs> I have plenty of problems. Most everybody else has plenty of problems. But you know, true victory comes because God possesses our emotions. And too many people make excuses. God, I just don't like, you know, I'm, I'm angry. God, I'm sad, I'm depressed. Uh, how many people get in, go into drunken stupors because they are depressed, lonely, whatever other reason they have for getting into, the, getting into alcohol or drugs? And God says, I control those emotions. Turn them over to me. And the consequences for turning them over to God would be wonderful. We get rewarded for that, not have to do all the consequences of facing anything else when we act in our emotions. Our feelings will lie to us so often. And God says, give them to me. I possess them. Give them to me. How much do we do in our life driven by emotion? We talked a lot about that yesterday at the Truth Project. You know, God gives us a whole bunch of truth in the Word of God. Facts. We need to be dealing with those. And then our, His Word moves us into true faith. And then our feelings will follow our, our facts and our faith. But how many times do we put faith first, our feelings first, and go, I just don't feel like loving this person, so God, I'm not going to do it. God, I just don't feel like being out in the bunks to people and, you know, because I am just depressed and I just want to wallow in my depression for a while and, and stay away from people. God, I just don't feel like. You know, God, I don't feel that I love my spouse today, so I think it's going to go out and have an, have an affair because she doesn't love me and I don't love her. And, and so we're just going to go do what I want to do. And God's saying, I have your emotions. Give them to me. Give them to me and then walk in the truth of the word. The truth of the word is so important for us to understand. He surrounds us. Right from the beginning of our life, he surrounds us. We're never alone. Verse 14, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows right well. I will praise you. I will give you laud. I will exalt you for I am fearfully or off, full of awe or reverently and wonderfully made. And wonderful is this whole idea of distinct, separate. Every single person is made with God's reverence, but we're also distinct. And we know about this. Fingerprints. No two people have the same fingerprint. No two people have the same eye pattern. No two people have the same voice pattern. No two people have the same emotional makeup. Even twins do not have identical features of that nature. They are separate and distinct. Every single person who's ever been created by God and brought forth in this world 
is marvelously made and wonderfully made. God has a hand in all of life. And this is part of what we've talked about at various times. Why do we have so much trouble with violence and, and going on in this world today? We forgot that we are marvelously and wonderfully made in the image of God. Or we teach our children that you're nothing but an animal, an evolved animal, but you're nothing but an animal. And then we're surprised when they act like animals. When people act like animals, killing one another and hurting one another. Well, why should we be surprised? We tell them that every day in school, that you're nothing but an animal. We go back to the Christian point of view. You are wonderfully made in the image of God. And everybody you're dealing with is wonderfully made in the image of God. Means that if you're going to respect God at all, you're going to treat others better than you would if, they're not, if you're not seeing them that way. That's exactly what's being taught in school, survival of the fittest. If you're strong enough to survive, you know, take out as many lives as you want because you're just, you're just an animal. And we're reaping what has been sown. And the further we get from God's standard of things, the worse things are going to get. And this is not new. Matter of fact, Christianity changed that vicious world before and we have lived in the last 2,000 years with a view of life that says God, God created you and made you special and you are important. You go back to Roman times, Greek times, Babylonian times, Assyrian times, Egyptian times, life was cheap. You, didn't, you weren't strong enough to make it in the make it, you deserved to die. And that was what you, before Christianity said, and that's what we're being as we're getting into our postmodern world. Outside of Christianity, we're getting back to, you're not strong enough to survive, who cares? Now, there's still pockets of people resisting because we still have a, especially in Europe, and we still have a Christian, Christianized viewpoint. You go to India where they have the caste system and Hinduism reigns with its whole idea of karma. Okay, and karma means that what you, you get what you deserve. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. When Christians go into India and minister to the untouchables, it freaks them out because the untouchables are getting what they deserve from their previous life. And you're, you're keeping them from paying for their bad, bad life by helping them out of their pit. An untouchable is the bottom level. They're, they're, they're so bad, they've been, they've been born into the caste of nothing but laborers and the lowest level of laborers. They, and so Christians go in and they help these people. They give them you know, clothes and feed them. And as far as the Hindus are concerned, you're not helping them because you're taking away the punishment that they were supposed to pay for their previous life. And if they don't pay for that previous life, they can't, they can't come back again at a higher level. How awful is that way of thinking? All right, but that is the way they think. And it's so abhorrent to us as Christians in our viewpoint, these are people made in the image of God who deserve to be helped up. And they don't see it that way because they're not seeing it from God's point of view. And the lie that Satan has promoted amongst them is so bad and so devastating and God right here says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You're individually made. And it says, marvelous are your works, or so wonderful, difficult to understand are your works. And that my soul knows right well. God is so much above us that when we really think about it, we go, God, I can't understand anything about what you do. And I've said this so many times. The more I get to know about God, the less I seem to know about him. Okay? When you begin to understand God's love, you realize that you just are beginning, barely beginning to understand his love. The more you understand his grace, the more you realize that you don't even understand grace. The more you know, think you know about anything to do with God, the more you realize, I don't know anything. 
I've just barely scratched the surface. Yeah. And this is the thing we're finding out even in our scientific world. We look out into space, and we used to think there were just a handful of stars that we could see. Now we use the Hubble telescope, and if you leave it focused on anything long enough, you find out it's nothing but stars. Nothing but stars. And they keep adding stars as, it's, as, it, as it goes. So how many stars are there? We have no idea. Uh, we go into the, the microscopic level. You know, and we used to think the atom was the smallest thing that we had. And now recently we've destroyed the atom and found that it's got different parts. Somebody will eventually destroy those parts and find out that there's parts inside of there and there's going to be parts inside of it. You know, how far infinitely down do we go? I don't know. Eventually we get to where God's holding everything together, but you know, everything we do, we look deeper, we find out more. You know, uh, I, I think about even like weather. You know, weather, weather's getting fairly good at predicting the weather. They're, they're up to like 60 or 70% accuracy. You know, but how many of us are old enough to remember when they were lucky to be right 25% of the time? You know, it's not going to rain two days from now and a thunderstorm comes along. <laughs> you know, nowadays, with all the technology they have, they're fairly accurate. They're still not right all the time. They still have to find out all the things that implement and affect the weather but they're getting better because they're studying it more. They're finding out how God put things into play. You know, we know more and more about God's creation than we've ever known before, and we still find out that we don't know anything. You know, it doesn't matter what we look at. We don't know anything about what God's doing. And it says, my soul understands that. That my soul knows right well. Every time we look around for God, he shows we don't know a whole lot about him. And it's kind of an amazing thought. But the longer you walk with God, the more you realize this verse is true. The more you're walking with God, the more you see. The more, the more sin you get out of your life, the more God shines a brighter light into your life and say, hey, there's a little more down there and it's really ugly. And have you been there? I hope you have. You kick out something out of your life, okay, good, good. all right, God, I got that out of my life. This is my besetting sin, and you said it earlier. I got rid of my besetting sin. I've, I've got my life all made, in, all, all made in the shade, and God says, well, let's just shine this light down there a little deeper. Look at, look at all that ugly stuff down there that we're going to work on next. And we're going to be doing that for the rest of our life, digging more and more sin out of our life until we finally die or get or raptured and he makes us who he says we are and he glorifies us. But this verse, these verses are one of the sets that pro-lifers use all the time to show that, that it is uh, that God knows us from the beginning. He has a plan for us from the beginning. So this, these verses are this in Jeremiah, I knew you, be, knew you before you were born. Uh, but these are very popular verses with the pro-life movement. But they're so much deeper than just the pro-life movement. <laughs> So, all right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank for our, this opportunity to, to study your word and show. Lord, we thank you that you know us. And you know us so much better than we know ourselves. And yet, you love us and you desire to guide us and help us. We ask you to guide and lead us in all that we do. Help us to learn to surrender to you quicker. In your son's name, amen.